0: Good morning, everyone. Kind of. I mean... It's well, like 2
1: p.m. at the time of this recording, but that's okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's 10 a.m. for you, most of you, hopefully, if you're listening at the right time. But anyway. Hello. Anyway. <laughs> Welcome back to Panastoria.
1: In case you forgot, I'm Lindsay.
0: In case you forgot, I'm Jonah.
1: <laughs> Since we just forgot to introduce ourselves.
0: Yeah. Today we are going to be discussing the Rwandan genocide.
1: Yeah, so... um I guess full disclosure, if you don't want to stick around, that's totally fine. It's going to be pretty rough. A lot of people died. It's pretty bad. Really brutal. So, definite definite content or content warning here, so please turn around if you're not comfortable with what is about to go down.
0: <laughs> we understand if you're not because yeah. 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 If for those of you who made it through our Yugoslav episodes, this conflict makes what happened in Bosnia
1: A little less vicious,
0: yeah. Which is saying a lot. Yeah, it was definitely still has a huge impact on society today, including around the world. Mm -hmm. It was a major failure in humanity, and I think we're gonna just go for it. Get right into it. So, similar to our Yugoslav episode, we need to understand the demographics of the region. So for those of you who don't know, Rwanda is a small country in mid-Africa, bordering Uganda, Tanzania, the Congo, and Burundi. The demographics from around 1993-94, when the genocide occurred, 85% of the population was Hutu, 14% Wututsi, and 1% was a group known as the Twa, who are... And I apologize, but apparently there's no better, there's no other alternative term for this. They're pygmies.
1: That is actually, like, the correct, like...
0: Yeah, but apparently, I understand that, like, from my understanding, there are people who don't like that term very much.
1: Yeah, no, I get that. But there's
0: literally no other term for it. But anyway, they definitely have a really, really, like, most of Africa have a very tumultuous colonial past,
1: Yeah, it does. Like all African nations, and, well, most of the world, actually. So, unlike most of Africa, though, Rwanda and the Great Lakes region. So, around Rwanda and Congo, it's known as the Great Lakes region of Africa. So, when you hear me refer to the Great Lakes region, that's what I mean. So, Rwanda and this region, really, actually, unlike the rest of Africa, were not sort of dealt with at the Berlin Conference of 1884. Real quick, the Berlin Conference was a conference where powers of Europe met to determine the fate of Africa, as all of them were seeking to add colonies in this period. The purpose of the conference, I mean, other than King Leopold II seeking to make Congo his personal property, was to create an ordered system for the colonization and development of Africa. Many nations had an abolitionist aim, wanting to drive the slave traders out of the country, or out of the continent. And this was driven by missionary groups as well. So there was a really large, like, cohesive effort from not just governments who wanted colonies, but also religious groups and people who wanted to end the slave trade. But most importantly, the conference established the principle of effective occupation, which states that powers could acquire rights over colonial lands if they possessed them or, quote, had effective occupation. Basically, if they had treaties with the local leaders, if they flew their flag there, and if they established an administration in the territory to govern it with a police force to keep order of it, they could have it. So the colonial power could also make use of the colony economically which was the, like, 98% of the reason that European powers wanted to be in Africa. The principle became important not only as a basis for European powers to acquire territorial sovereignty over Africa, but also for determining the limits of their respective overseas possessions, as effective occupation served in some instances as criterion for settling disputes over the boundaries between colonies. As the act was limited in its scope to the lands that fronted on the African coast, European powers in numerous instances later claimed rights over lands in the interior without demonstrating the requirement of effective occupation. So, Rwanda's an example. <laughs> What's important about the conference, kind of, like, most importantly, but now in hindsight, is that it became the first reference in an international act to the obligations attaching spheres of influence. Um, so it's kind of the first known time that we've talked about the idea of a sphere of influence, which is important now in our own geopolitics, and then, of course, and during the day. But the region was... So while it was not dealt with in this conference, uh, Rwanda was dealt with in another conference in Brussels in 1890. This conference gave Rwanda and Burundi to the German Empire as colonial spheres of interest in exchange for announcing all claims on Uganda. Due to the poor maps referenced in these agreements, Belgium was left with a claim on the western half of the country. So it was a bit weird. The new area encompassed the Kingdom of Rwanda, as well as smaller kingdoms on the shores of, Lake Victoria. So, real quick, uh, Rwanda pre- prior to this has formed into a kingdom. Uh, it's led by a Mwami, which is a king. So they had their own system of governance and were actually fairly well-established. The first German visit to explore Rwanda was Count... Or the first German to visit, sorry, was Count Gustav Adolf von Gutzen, who had led an expedition from 1893 to 1894 to claim the hinterlands of the Tingyaninka colony. It's around Tanzania, and I just butchered that. I'm really sorry. Um, in 1897, German colonists and missionaries arrived in Rwanda. In the early years, the Germans had little direct control in the region and completely relied on indigenous government. They did not encourage modernization and centralization of the regime. However, they did introduce the collection of cash taxes. Germans hoped that cash taxes, rather than taxes in kind, would force farmers to switch to profitable crops like coffee in order to acquire the cash to pay taxes. This led to a lot of drastic changes in the Rwandan economy. German officials and colonists incorporated theories of race into their native policies. The Germans believed that the Tutsi ruling class was racially superior to the other native peoples of Rwanda because of their alleged Hamitic origins on the Horn of Africa, which they believed made them more, quote, European than the Hutu. Colonists, including the powerful Roman Catholic officials, favored the Tutsis because of their st- taller statue, more, quote, honorable and eloquent personalities, and willingness to convert to Roman Catholicism. The Germans therefore favored Tutsi dominance over the farming Hutus, almost in a feudalistic manner, and granted them ruling position. These positions eventually turned into the overall governing body of Rwanda. Prior to the colonial period, Tutsis Tutsis comprised about 15-16% to of the population. Many were poor peasants but comprised the majority of the ruling elite. The monarchy were Tutsi. A significant minority of the remaining non-Tutsi political elite were Hutu. German presence had a mixed effect on the authority of the Rwandan governing powers. The Germans helped the Muami increase their control over Rwandan affairs. Tutsi power weakened with the introduction of capitalist forces and through increased integration with outside markets and economies. Germany introduced a head tax on all Rwandans, which also weakened Tutsi control. The tax made Hutus feel less bonded to their Tutsi patrons and more dependent on the Europeans. A head tax implied equality among those being counted, and despite Germany's attempt to uphold traditional Tutsi domination, the Hutu began to shift their ideas. By 1899, the Germans placed advisors on the courts, or at the courts of local chiefs. So the Germans were starting to take over more in this case. On May 14th, 1910, the European Convention of Brussels fixed the borders of Uganda, Congo, and e- German East Africa, which settled the previous border disputes. So Belgium no longer had a random half of Rwanda. Um, <laughs> at the end of World War I in 1916, though, Belgium was given and accepted a mandate from the League of Nations to govern Rwanda as the territory of Rwanda-Urundi, along with its existing Congo colony to the west. So one of the punishments for World War II... or sorry, World War I, God. One of the punishments for World War I was that Germany got to lose all their colonies. So a colonial military campaign from 1923 to 1925 brought the small independent kingdoms of the west of Rwanda under the Central Rwandan Court. The portion of the German territory, never a part of the Kingdom of Rwanda, was stripped from the colony and attached to the Belgian colony, as mandated by the British the Belgians continued to rely on the Tutsi power structure for administering the country, although they became more directly involved and extended its interests into education and agricultural supervision. The Belgians introduced cassava, maize, and the Irish potato to try and improve food production for subsistence farmers. This was especially important in the face of two droughts and subsequent famines in 1928 29 and 1943 44. One fifth to one third of the population perished in the latter famine. The Belgians instead or intended the colony to be profitable, introducing coffee as a commodity crop and used a system of forced labor to have it cultivated. This is not unlike their tactics used in in Congo. Uh, King Leopold pretty much used Congo as his own personal rubber-creating factory. Cut off a lot of hands. It was not good. So, not great for Rwanda to now be in the hands of Belgians. (laughs) They don't have a good past. Each peasant was required to devote a certain percentage of their fields to coffee, and this was enforced by the Belgians and their local, mainly Tutsi, allies. The forced labor approach to colonization was condemned by many internationally and was extremely unpopular in Rwanda. Hundreds of thousands of Rwandans immigrated to the British Protectorate of Uganda, which was much wealthier and did not have the same policies. Belgian rule also reinforced the ethnic divide between Tutsi and Hutu and supported Tutsi political power. Due to the eugenics movement in Europe, the colonial government became concerned with the differences between the Hutu and the Tutsi. Tutsis had better frenetic measurements, bigger skulls, they were taller, lighter skin. And as a re- result, Europeans came to believe that Tutsis had Caucasian ancestry and were thus superior. Each citizen was issued a racial identification card, which de- defined one as legally Hutu or Tutsi. Tutsis began to believe the myth of their superior racial status and exploited their power over the Hutu majority. In 1931, an, ethnically I- an ethnic identity was officially mandated, and administrative documents systematically detailed each person's ethnicity. The history of the country which justified the existence of these policies was written, but there was... Zero evidence to ever support any of that, as we all know now, especially phrenology is really just a bastard science. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The observed differences between the Hutus and Tutsis are more to do with their surroundings and how they ate. The Tutsis raised cattle and drank more milk traditionally, so that would help them grow because nutrition is a big part of how your body evolves. (laughs) Recent studies have found that the difference between Hutu and Tutsi was really the same kind of differences seen between French social classes in the 1950s. It was really all about what you ate. And, like, how you lived. So it had really nothing to do with actual genetics. The fragmenting of Hutu lands angered Mwami Yuhi IV, then king of Rwanda. He had hoped to centralize his power enough to get rid of the Belgians. So he was not happy. In 1931, Tutsi plots against the Belgians resulted in Mwami Yuhi being deposed. Tutsis took up arms against the Belgians, but feared their military superiority and did not revolt. Yuhi was replaced by Mutara III, his son. From 1935 onwards, Tutsi, Hutu, and Twa were indicated on identity cards. However, because of the existence of many wealthy Hutu, who shared the financial stature of the Tutsi, the Belgians used an expedient method of classification based on the number of cattle a person owned. Anyone with 10 or more cattle was considered a part of the Tutsi class. The Roman Catholic Church, the primary educators in the country, subscribed to and enforced the differences between Hutu and Tutsi, even creating a separate educational system for them. Following World War II... Rwanda-Urundi became a United Nations Trust territory, with Belgium as the administrative authority, so not a lot really changed in that sense. Um, Belgium encouraged the growth of democratic political institutions, but were resisted by Tutsi traditionalists who saw them as a threat to their rule. Anti-colonial sentiment rose throughout Central Africa in the 1950s. Hutu resentment of the Tutsi increased in this period, as many Hutus saw them as standing in their way of emancipation. Policies of forced labor in Rwanda had been removed through the 1940s, but divisions still existed and tensions were not eased by the UN mandates, the Tutsi elite class, or the Belgian colonists. So as you're starting to see, this is kind of a powder keg. (laughs) Gregor Kayabanda led the Hutu Emancipation Movement, creating a party, and in 1957 wrote the Hutu Manifesto and his party quickly became militarized. In reaction, the Tutsi formed the Unaru Party in 1959, lobbying for immediate independence for Rwanda Urundi to be based on the existing Tutsi monarchy. This group also militarized. In November 1959, Tutsis tried to assassinate Kayabanda. Rumors of the death of Hutu politician Dominique Mbonimotua, I wow, just wrecked that, at the hands of Tutsis who had beaten him set off a violent retaliation called the Wind of Destruction, which is also known as the Rwandan Revolution. Hutus killed an estimated 20,000 to 100,000 Tutsis. Thousands more, including the Muami, fled to neighboring Uganda before Belgian commandos arrived to quell the violence. Tutsi leaders accused the Belgians of abetting the Hutus. A UN special commission reported racism reminiscent of Nazism against the Tutsi minorities and discriminatory actions by the government and Belgian authorities. The revolution of 1959 marked a major political change in Rwanda. Some 150,000 Tutsis were exiled in neighboring countries. Tutsis who remained in Rwanda were excluded from political power in a state becoming more centralized under Hutu power. Tutsis also fled the South Kivu province of Congo. In 1960, the Belgian government agreed to hold democratic municipal elections in Rwanda-Urundi. The Hutu majority elected Hutu representatives, and the centuries-old Tutsi monarchy was officially dead. A Belgian effort to create an independent Rwanda-Urundi with Hutu-Tutsi power-sharing failed miserably, largely due to the escalating violence. At the, arguing of the U- or, sorry, at the urging of the U.N., the Belgian government then de- decided to divide rwanda burundi into two separate countries, Rwanda and Burundi. On 25th of September 1961, a referendum was held to establish whether Rwanda should become a citizen or remain a kingdom. Or, sorry, become a republic or remain a kingdom. <laughs> Citizens voted overwhelmingly to become a republic. After parliamentary elections held on the same day, the first Rwandese republic was declared with Kayabanda as prime minister. Dominique and Mbo- er, M- Bonumutua was named the first president of the transitional government on July 1, 1962, with Belgium, or Belgium with UN oversight granted full independence to Rwanda and Burundi. In 1963, though, a Tutsi guerrilla invasion from Burundi into Rwanda unleashed another anti-Tutsi backlash by the Hutu government, their forces killing 14,000 people. The economic union between Rwanda and Burundi was dissolved and tensions between the countries worsened. Rwanda would become a Hutu-dominated one-party state. Kayabanda became Rwanda's first elected president. After more violence in 1964, the government suppressed political action. It banned political parties and executed Tutsi members. Kayabanda was then overthrown in 1973 by Defense Minister Major General Juvenal Habyarimana, who remained in power until, ni- until the 1990s. So, tumultuous past.
0: <laughs> Very much so. Well, yeah, it's pretty clear that tensions between the Hutus and the Tutsis were pretty big at this point. So around the time of decolonization, many of the Tutsi population fled to neighboring Uganda. There, the Rwandan Refugees Welfare Association was founded in 1979, but was renamed Rwandan Alliance for National Unity, or RANU, in 1980. Its formation was in response to Ugandan President Milton Obote's hostility towards the Tutsis as he believed they were working with former dictator Idi Amin.
1: Also another
0: bad guy. Yeah, pretty. They don't call him the butcher of Africa. or like Butcher of East, East Africa for nothing. Important figures were Fred... I'm going to butcher this name. I apologize. Fred Rigima and Paul Gagame. Both refugees residing in Rwanda. They joined the rebel group Front for National Salvation, or Frenasa. Its leader, Yoweri Musavini. Fought against Amin's regime with Abote during the 1979 Tanzanian invasion of Uganda. Yeah. Spoiler alert, it was the Tanzanians who ousted uh, Idi Amin. <laughs> we'll get to that soon. Maybe.
1: I mean, we're talking about one vicious, uh, vicious dictator. May as well talk about another.
0: Exactly. Abote and... Museveni had a falling out following the 1980 general election, which was seen as one through rampant fraud. A new rebel force was founded by Rigima, Kagame, and Museveni, named the National Resistance Army, or NRA, not the other NRA. With With the goal of overthrowing the Abote government, this became the Ugandan Bush War. Eventually, Abote's government became so hostile towards the Tutsi refugees. RANU was forced to relocate to Nairobi, Kenya in 1981. The following year, refugees were evicted from the land in the Ankole region by militias, often violent in nature. The Rwandan government closed its borders and detained any Tutsis attempting to return. By 1986, the NRA were successful in capturing the Ugandan capital of Kampala, and Museveni took power. Regima and Kagame, um, now battle experienced, made preparations to invade Rwanda under the goal of allowing the refugees to return home. The two, while working in the Ugandan army, organized with Rwandan Tutsis. Ranu rebranded itself as the Rwandan Patriotic Front, or RPF, in 1987, with the NRA merging with the organization. So what's interesting to note that while there are members of the of the r p. f there are also sworn soldiers in and officers in the Ugandan army <laughs> so it's, yeah, it could have definitely caused problems
1: things like that hap- keep happening yeah it's the reorganization of armies in Africa is common, it seems
0: especially around decolonization and yeah. whatnot. So the RPF did attempt to invade Rwanda in 1989, but they were quickly repulsed because they were just not equipped or prepared, didn't have the numbers. And then further possible issues happened when Regima was ordered by Museveni to, in mid-1990 to undergo officer training in Fort Leavenworth, US, <laughs> with plans to begin overseas deployment for the Rwandan officers in the Ugandan army. However, the RPF were planning a second invasion, so Regima feigned fatigue and requested a break, which was granted. Kagami was instead ordered to go, and to avoid suspicion, he was allowed to by the RPF. On October 1st, 1990, 50 members of the Ugandan army abandoned their posts and crossed into Rwanda, killing several Rwandan border guards and forcing many more to retreat. Hundreds more rebels followed behind using weapons stolen from the Ugandan army. In total, 2,000 Rwandans deserted the Ugandan army to take part in the invasion. Disaster struck the next day when Regima was shot and killed under mysterious circumstances, with the official contemporary Rwandan government agreeing he was killed by a stray bullet Well, another story says while attempting to convince Hutu soldiers to join them against the Rwandan government, he and another RPF officer got into an argument and the officer shot Regima in the head. The Rwandan government requested assistance from France and it is even suggested the government staged an attack on Kigali to exaggerate the immediacy of the danger. On October 5th, 600 French troops arrived in Kigali. Officially, the soldiers were there to protect French nationals, but it was later confirmed they were there to assist the Rwandan government. Over 8,000 Tutsi political opponents were arrested in the aftermath and the Tutsi population were viewed with suspicion by the Hutu majority. The infamous Radio Rwanda encouraged violence against Tutsis and even organized a pogrom on October 11th, resulting in 383 Tutsis massacred in the Gizeni province. This is before the genocide took place, but you can see it's starting to form. Yeah. So... Kagame left the course in the U.S. early and returned to find the RPF demoralized and disorganized. He instantly went to work rallying the other senior officers to regroup and pull his remaining forces out of Rwanda and into the Virunga Mountains. A small handful of RPF soldiers remained in Rwanda to conduct guerrilla fighting. Between 1991 and 1992, RPF conducted small-scale attacks over the border as opposed to a full-scale invasion. Kagame ordered quick attacks to keep up the diplomatic and psychological effects of the RPF and make sure that the, these both both these aspects wouldn't diminish. Eventually, both sides were persuaded to enter peace talks and representatives from both groups met in Tanzania to begin the peace process. The peace process was made up of four main groups, the Hutu hardliners of the Coalition for the Defense of the Republic, or CDR, and extremists from the ruling National Republican Movement for Democracy and Development, or MRND. The second were the moderate Rwandan opposition, seeking conciliation with the Tutsis, though remaining skeptical of the RPF. Third were the RPF, and finally was the Rwandan government represented by Hapari Mana, who wished to remain in power and also find middle ground between the two groups. Also, what I forgot to mention in my notes, this fourth group was made up by a lot of moderate Hutu in the government. An agreement between the RPF and the government was reached in early 1993, which included a power-sharing agreement between MRND, RPF, and the moderate opposition parties, but would exclude the CDR. Habiramana... Would continue as president in the transitional government until democratic elections could be arranged. MRND hardliners opposed to the deal and organized demonstrations across Rwanda. Many Tutsis were killed and their homes were burnt to the ground. As a result, the RPF withdrew from the conference and commenced their armed campaign. A second attempt was made in in late 1993 with the signing of the Arusha Accords in Tanzania which put in place power sh- a power-sharing plan and saw many of the hardliners in the MRD and d leadership replaced with moderates. On October 5th, 1993, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 872, creating the United Nations Assistance Min- Mission for Rwanda, or UN-AMIR, with the mission to supervise and aid in the implement- implementation of the Arusha Accords. Yeah,
1: tensions, obviously, on the rise in Rwanda. But the situation in Rwanda was also influenced in large part by what was happening in neighboring Burundi at the same time. (laughs) So both countries had Hutu majorities, but Burundi was ruled by an army-controlled government. Like in Rwanda, Burundi had a series of violent clashes between Tutsis and Hutu. In 1972, nearly 200,000 Hutus were purged by the Tutsi government in Burundi. There were more cross-border refugees, which had led to more of a mixed population and continuing mountain tensions. Many exiled Rwandan Tutsis in Uganda had joined Museveni's forces in the Ugandan Bush War, including Kagame, as Jonah mentioned. In on October 1990, the RPF invaded Rwanda from their base in Uganda. The RPF blamed the government for failing to democratize and resolve the problems of some 500,000 Tutsi refugees living in diaspora around the world. Though the Tutsi objective seemed to be to pressure the Rwandan government into making concessions, the invasion was instead seen as an attempt to bring the Tutsi ethnic group back into power. Therefore, tensions continued to increase to a level higher than ever before. After three years of fighting, the government and RPF signed a final ceasefire agreement, but that obviously immediately ran into problems. (laughs) The situation worsened when the first elected Burundian president, um, Elikort Ndadiye, a Houthi was assassinated by the Burundian Tutsi-dominated army in October 1993. A fierce civil war erupted between Tutsi and Hutu in Burundi, spilling over the border into Rwanda and destabilizing the fragile Rwandan Accords. Tutsi and Hutu tensions rapidly intensified. <laughs> so, it's really getting to a nasty point at this point. You know, the United Nations deployed, or deployed UNAMIR, which is the United Nations assistance mission in for Rwanda, but it was underfunded, understaffed, and largely ineffective in the face of a two-country civil war. I'll talk about it a little more later. <laughs> On April 6, 1994, the plane-carrying juvenile Habariyamana, president of Rwanda, and Cyprian... And Tarimura, the Hutu president of Burundi, was shot down as it prepared to land at Kigali. Both men died. The assassination then sparked, was essentially the spark that was thrown into the flame of all of the tension, and massive violence ensued.
0: Yes. So, yeah, this is it. Massive obscene
1: violence, so if you don't want to listen to this part,
0: let's get ahead. Stuff that was difficult for us to stomach researching. But there's a couple groups that you really need to understand, because unlike, say, the Holocaust, this genocide was not largely committed by members of the government. They were committed by militias who were supervised by the government. Don't get me wrong, army Rwandan soldiers did commit acts of genocide during this, but they largely didn't. In fact... It was a mixture of militias and just ordinary citizens who were conducting this genocide, which before this point was hardly or was either not heard of or hardly heard of. Yeah, as I said, the government and military did not commit most of the atrocities and instead left that to militias. However, the military did provide training and equipment, to, to um, with some getting both as early as 1992. So the first militia is Interomwe, which was the youth group of the MRND and was run by the hardline faction. It was let, led by a man named Robert Kajuga, who ironically was Tutsi, but his father had acquired Hutu identity papers for his family, and therefore he was able to hide his true ethnicity. Over there were over one hundred thousand members in nineteen ninety four. It is still active today, though there is only an estimated sixty five hundred members as of twenty twelve. And they are mostly active in the prolonged conflicts going on in the surrounding countries. The other one is called Impuza Mugambi, which literally translates to those with the same goal. It was formed in 1992. It was the paramilitary of the CDR. It was smaller and less organized than inter Both groups were generally recruits from the poor and unemployed, which... Seems to be a running theme when it comes to hardline groups. Mm. So immediately after the plane was shot down, Radio Mi Collin, which translates to Radio Thousand Hills, bl- they blamed the RPF and ordered people to begin killing the Tutsi population. Ten Belgian UN soldiers were sent to escort Prime Minister Aga- Agatha Uwilingimana to radio wanda so she could address the nation however the presidential guard had gotten there first and took control of of the station instead agatha and her protectors were surrounded by soldiers and civilians forcing the belgian soldiers to surrender their weapons the uh, agatha and her husband were murdered while the belgian soldiers were taken to a nearby military base tortured and then killed Rwandan military then set up roadblocks across Kigali, and citizens were ordered to remain in their homes. Members from Interamwe and Impusa Mogambi began marching through the streets, armed with machetes, clubs, and some small arms. Many ordinary citizens were gathered from their homes and organized into groups. One group would help with the main roadblocks, while the others were split into the main so-called killing groups. Known Tutsis and moderate Hutus were pulled from their homes, beaten and butchered, even reports of targets being chased and hunted down like sport. Small uh, Soldiers did partially participate in the killings. According to Alet Smullers and Lottie Hoax's studying the microdynamics of the Rwandan genocide, these soldiers did not kill necessarily out of hate, but because they were ordered to. I need to point this out. This is not to be mistaken as just following orders. I'm not excusing what they did. They simply, they're simply stating that they would not have actually killed without being ordered first, but they had no hesitation in killing when they were ordered to do so. Citizens weren't given a choice and had to join whether they agreed to or not. Pressure to participate varied per place and many managed to either bribe their way out or talk their way out of participating. However, there were those who willingly participated out of hate, and there were others that, while they were that while they had conflicting thoughts about it, participated because they believed it was the right thing to do. Greed is also believed to have been a motivating factor to some people, as a lot of looting would take place after the killings. Prime Minister Theonest Bagosora assumed power and, along with the Crisis Committee, issued the order to begin killing Tutsis. The giving the order. Interhomway, personally to the, a crowd in kigali and making phone calls to the local prefect prefecture leaders the presidential guard led the killings in kigali with assistance from the militias people passing through the roadblocks were required to show their identity cards and tutsis were immediately dragged away and killed house-to-house searches began with mass slaughter and looting of tutsi families most of the urban killings were committed by the military or militias, while in the countryside it was conducted largely by ordinary citizens. However, the prefectures of Gitarama and Butare were predominantly moderates who refused to partake in the violence and even disobeyed direct orders to do so. Hundreds of Tutsis were given sanctuary at the Polish Palotin Mission Church in the Gikondo region of Kigali. Early in the morning of April 9th, two presidential guards and two militiamen entered the church and began checking identity cards. One of the priests challenged the men, saying all in the church were Christian worshippers of the congregation. However, the gendarmes shouted back, saying the church was hiding what they referred to as inyensi or cockroaches. An officer came in and told the gendarmes not to waste their bullets as more of the inter were en route. 100 militia entered the church and began slashing at those inside with machetes and clubs. The killings lasted two hours with men, women, and children literally hacked to pieces and their identity cards burned. I understand I'm going very into graphic detail, but you guys have to understand they were butchering people. The two Polish UN observers who were located at the, at the area attempted to call for help, but their signals were jammed. And by the time that a request got to the higher ups, it was denied due to the widespread atrocities across Kigali, making it impossible for the UN soldiers to safely make it to the area. After the massacre, the priests, nuns, and UN personnel desperately worked to try and save as many wounded as they could and collected many of the burnt identity cards in order to identify the dead. Ambulances from the Red Cross eventually arrived in the afternoon, where only two people were brought to a nearby hospital, and these two were the only survivors of the massacre. In total, 110 people were killed in the, in the church. Furthermore, in, in Kibungo province, which is 140 kilometers east of Kigali, around 2,000 refugees were hiding in the Naurubwe Roman Catholic Church, where when militias armed with spears, machetes, clubs, grenades, and automatics killed. All of them. Local priest, Athanse Seromba, was later found to have aided in the killings when he was tried after the genocide. The Twa people were also targeted because they were accused of aiding the RPF. And it's important to mention the Twa people because they are often the forgotten victims of the genocide. They lost a fair bit of their small percentage of inhabitants within Rwanda. Unfortunately, I don't have exact statistics yet. But just to say it was pretty yeah. devastating for them. To make matters worse, rape was also used as a weapon during the genocide conducted by Rwandan soldiers, militia, and ordinary citizens alike by both men and women. So there were women raping people as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And this in turn led to a major spread of HIV and AIDS, and people were reported to have been raped for days on end. France, assisted by Belgium and Unimir, organized a military operation of over 190 paratroopers, along with members of the Belgian infantry and Unimir personnel, and they began the evacuation of expatriates. The operation continues to be seen as controversial as the French refused to provide assistance to the Tutsis and moderate Hutus, even allowing those who made it onto the buses to be removed at the checkpoints and killed. Furthermore, during the evacuation of the French embassy, staff shredded hundreds to thousands of documents relating to the French government's relationship with the old regime. In the United States, Bill Clinton and the cabinet were aware of the genocide taking place but decided not to intervene because of the failure of Black Hawk Down or the Battle of Mogadishu in 1993. On top of several other disasters during the U.S.-led unisom II mission in Somalia, American Special Deputy Envoy to Somalia commented, quote, our lack of response in Rwanda was a fear of getting involved in something like a Somalia all over again, end quote. Clinton later said his failure to respond in Rwanda was his greatest foreign policy failure during his presidency, and he continues to express regret for not acting sooner than he did, or acting at all to this day. And in fact, it's a lot of It's said that the reason why he was so aggressive in responding to Bosnia was because of his failure to respond in Rwanda. Mm -hmm.
1: So a little bit more on the UN mission in Rwanda. Uh, Probably the most
0: famous aspect that people know about in this whole...
1: Yeah. Yeah, actually. (laughs) It's not a good look for the UN. The 90s weren't a good time for the United Nations peacekeeping force. So, UNAMIR was established, like I said, it's the United, United Nations assistant, Assistance Mission for Rwanda, or UNAMIR as I'm going to refer to it. UNAMIR was established in the face of growing tensions. Um, the RPF invasion served to radicalize the Hutu population, the Hutu civilian population were essentially labored as a, labeled as accomplices or as Jonah said cockroaches, and were accused of secretly aiding the RPF invaders. Anti-Tutsi propaganda spread through the publica- er, publication Kangura, a forerunner to the radio station RTLM, which Jonah also mentioned, and that was created immediately after the invasion. Uh, the first plans for mass murder of Tutsi were also developed towards the end of 1990, so this had been planned a little bit, at least. It wasn't a new idea anyway. First plans for mass murder of Tutsi were also developed towards the end of 1990, mostly in a series of secret meetings by a network of associates based around Agatha Javira the first lady. So, she wasn't innocent either. Uh, Uganda and Rwanda had a dispute about alleged Ugandan support for the RPF, and both petitioned the UN president requesting that military observers be deployed along the border to verify that military supplies were not crossing. This resulted in the United Nations observer mission, Uganda-Rwanda, or UNAMUR, being approved by the United Nations Security Council in June 1993 to deploy along the Ugandan side of the border. Seven days later, UN Secretary General Boutros Boutros-Ghali announced that Brigadier General Romeo Dallaire was to be appointed the chief military observer for UNAMUR, which reached its authorized strength of 81 observers by September. MOG one was deployed inside Rwanda. Meanwhile, talks took place to create a power sharing agreement between the RPF and Rwandan government. They both requested UN assistance in implementing the agreement. In early August, MONG 1 was replaced by NMOG 2, or NMOG 2, sorry, consisting of about 130 members in preparation for a UN peacekeeping force. So, UNAMIR had a mandate, which was to, one, contribute to the security of the city of Kigali, inter alia, within a weapons-secure established, or sorry, weapons-secure area established by parties in and around the city. Two, to monitor observance of the ceasefire agreement, which calls for the establishment of containment and assembly zones, and the demarcation of new demilitarized zone and other demilitarization procedures. Three, to monitor the security situation during the final period of the transitional government's mandate leading up to the elections. Four to assist with mine clearance, primarily through training programs. Five to investigate the request of the parties or on its own initiative instances of al- alleged non-compliance with the provisions of the Arusha Peace Agreement, relating to the integration of the armed forces, and pursue any such instances with the parties <laughs> responsible and report thereon as appropriate to the Secretary-General. To monitor the process of re- repatriation of Rwandese refugees and resettlement of displaced persons, to verify that it is carried out in a safe and orderly manner to assist in the coordination of humanitarian assistance activities in conjunction with relief operations, and finally to investigate and report on incidents regarding the activities of the police. So its authorized strength was 2,500 personnel, but it took some five months of piecemeal commitments for the mission to reach this level. On April 5th, 1994, the UN voted to extend the mandate of UNIMIR to July 29th, 1994, after expressing, quote, deep concern at the delay in the establishment of the broad-based transitional government and the Transitional National Assembly, and concern at the de- deterioration in security in the country, particularly in Kigali. Among the first targets of the genocide were Prime Minister Agatha uweling and 10 Belgian members of 2nd Commando Battalion, her Commando Regiment operating as part of UNAMIR. As Jonah said, these troops were murdered viciously after handing over their weapons to the Rwandan government troops. What Jonah didn't mention, though, is that they were actually advised to do so by their battalion commander, who was unclear on the legal issues with authorizing them to defend themselves even though they had already been under fire for approximately two hours. So, yeah. Following the plane crash and death of Habiramana, Romeo Dallaire liaised repeatedly with both the Crisis Committee and the RPF in an attempt to reestablish peace. He addressed the government forces during the night of April 6th, expressing regret at the death but urging them to restrain the killings that he had commenced. He also urged Kagame not to resume the civil war, to avoid escalating the violence, and to give Yunamir a chance to rein in the killings. Neither side was interested in a ceasefire, the government because it was controlled by the genocide heirs, and the RPF because it considered it necessary to fight to stop the killing. Unamir's Chapter 4 mandate rendered it powerless to intervene militarily, and most of its Rwandan staff were killed in the early days of the genocide, severely limiting its ability to operate. Unamir was largely reduced to a bystander role, and Dallaire would later call it a failure. Its most significant contribution was to provide refuge for thousands of Tutsi and moderate Hutu at its headquarters in Amahoro Stadium, as well as other secure UN sites. UNAMIR also assisted with the evacuation of foreign nationals. A group of Belgian soldiers who had been sheltering 2,000 Rwandans at École Technique Officielle were ordered to abandon their station to assist in the evacuation. After the Belgians left, Hutu militants entered and massacred everyone inside. On April 12th, the Belgian government, which was one of the largest troop contributors to UNAMIR and had lost 10 soldiers protecting the Prime Minister, announced that it was withdrawing. Belgium also favored a complete withdrawal of UNAMIR and lobbied for this in the UN. Dallaire protested, arguing that the force should be strengthened and given a new mandate to protect the thousands of refugees it was already protecting. The UN Security Council refused, telling Dallaire that UNAMIR would be effectively withdrawn unless the belligerents agreed to a ceasefire by early May. The United States was particularly keen to get out of Rwanda and said, quote, wanted to leave it to its fate after losing troops in the UN mission in Somalia before this. So New Zealand, though, came to the the rescue. They held the rotating presidency of the Security Council at the time, and they were the lone voice supporting with reinforcement and in late April persuaded the council to postpone UNAMIR's withdrawal despite continuing reluctance from the United States and the United Kingdom. Like I said, UNAMIR was understaffed, and it was abandoned, but it did the best it could with what forces remained. As individuals and as a group, UNAMIR forces did manage to save the lives of thousands of Tutsis in and around Kigali and the few areas of UN control. Duttler requested the immediate insertion of 5,000 troops, but obviously was denied. For six weeks, UNAMIR coordinated peace talks between the Hutu government and the RPF to little avail. Eventually, on May 17th, the UN agreed to reinforcement. The reinforcement would come in the form of 5,500 troops and much-needed personnel carriers and other equipment to UNAMIR, which would henceforth be known as UNAMIR II. The new soldiers did not start arriving until late June, and following the end of the genocide in July, the role of UNAMIR II was largely confined to maintaining security and stability. UNAMIR II and subsequent resolutions were still unclear on the right to use force in stopping genocide. In one of Dallaire's parting cables, he said that, quote, "...the UN force had been prevented from having a modicum of self-respect and effectiveness on the ground." Unfortunately, in the face of the mayhem in Rwanda and this diplomatic watering down of Unamir's mandate, many UN member states delayed contributing personnel for some time until the main wave of killings had ceased. So they could have done something, but chose not to. Following the end of the main killings, the challenge for Unamir and the many NGOs on the ground was to maintain the fragile peace, stabilize the government, and care for the nearly 4 million displaced persons in camps in Rwanda, Zaire, Tanzania, Burundi, and Uganda. Also, Zaire is the Democratic Republic of Congo now, just for reference. The massive camps around Lake Kivu in the northwest of Rwanda was holding about 1.2 million people, and this was creating enormous security, health, and ecological problems. After the late arrival of much-needed support, UNAMIR continued to carry out its mandate to the best of its ability. In 1996, however, with the assertion uh, from the new Rwandese government that UNAMIR had failed in its priority mission, the UN withdrew the UNAMIR mandate on March 8th. Despite the failure of UNAMIR in its main mission, its humanitarian services during the genocide are recognized to this day as having saved the lives of thousands or tens of thousands of Tutsis and Hutu moderates who would have died otherwise. However, the actions of the UN in Rwanda have been used by some as an example of overbureaucratic and dithering and a dithering approach in the UN. Countries that contributed to UNAMIR were Argentina, Australia, Austria, Bangladesh, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, Chad, Congo, Djibouti, Egypt, Ethiopia, Fiji, Germany, Ghana, Guinea, Guinea Guinea-Bissau, Guyana, India, Jordan, Kenya, Malawi, Mali, the Netherlands, Niger, Nigeria, Pakistan, Poland, Romania, Russia, Senegal, Slovakia, Spain, Switzerland, Togo, Tunisia, the United Kingdom, Uruguay, Zambia, and Zimbabwe. 27 members of UNAMIR lost their lives during the mission.
0: Well, okay, so on the day the genocide started, April 7th, News of the genocide quickly reached Kagame and the rest of the RPF. Kagame informed both the crisis committee and personnel at Unimir that the RPF would resume their campaign if the killings did not stop. The next day, the Rwandan army surrounded and attacked the national parliament, but the RPF soldiers stationed there were able to repel the attack. RPF relief forces attacked in three fronts from the north in order to reach the the forces cut off in the capital. The interim government made several attempts to establish negotiations with Kagame, but all requests were refused as the latter was now unwilling to negotiate and did not trust the interim government. The RPF made quick gains during their assault, establishing control over the north and east of Kigali. This allowed many Tutsi refugees to escape safely behind the front lines and towards Uganda. Unamir made several attempts for a ceasefire between both sides, but Kagame made it clear the RPF would not stop until the killings did. So basically at this point, Kagame was, I, I do genuinely believe this, that no matter what, even if the killings had stopped, Kagame would not have stopped and would have taken out the government because I think rightfully so, he distrusts the interim government.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that he had a lot of valid reasons for distrusting the interim Mm -hmm. government and distrusting.
0: um, Absolutely. Distrusting the militias or anything. By the end of April, the RPF had secured the entire border with Tanzania into their control and generally encountered... Little resistance, except in the areas near Kigali and Grigiri. Or on May 16th, the RPF cut off Kigali from Gitarama, where the interim government had fled to and set up temporary operations. By June, RPF had encircled Kigali and had entered the city. By now, many of the government forces were fleeing or in disarray. It should be noted that the RPF were reported to have conducted their own atrocities of against the Hutus, actions Kagami attributed to Lightly disciplined soldiers acting out of revenge. And he stated that the RPF soldiers engaging in revenge killings were punished. However, to this day, people allege the RPF were purposely committing atrocities, which, as Lindsay's going to point out, is probably true.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a little tough to say exactly, but yeah. By June 13th, they'd taken Gitarama following an unsuccessful attempt by the Rwandan government, forces to reopen the road. The interim government was forced to relocate. As well as fighting the war, Kagame was heavily recruiting to expand his army. The new recruits included Tutsi survivors of the genocide and refugees from Burundi. Uh, These soldiers were generally less disciplined than his other ones, so it wasn't his favorite recruiting tactic, but needs bodies. Um, Kagame had successfully encircled Kigali and spent half of June fighting to take the city. Government forces had superior manpower and weapons, but the RPF steadily gained territory as well as conducting raids to rescue civilians from behind enemy lines. Romeo Dallaire actually complimented Kagami, calling him a master of psychological warfare. Kagami exploited the fact that the government forces were concentrating on the genocide rather than the fight for Kigali, and capitalized on the government's loss of morale as it lost territory. The RPF finally defeated the Rwandan government forces in Kigali on June 4th, or sorry, July 4th, and then taking the new side of the interim government on the 18th, forcing the government to go to Zaire and thus ending the genocide. At the end of July 1994, Kagame's forces held the whole of Rwanda, except for a zone in the southwest, which had been occupied by a French-led UN force.
0: So in total, the genocide lasted only 100 days, which is relatively short for a genocide at that magnitude.
1: Yeah, it's pretty rapid, intense killing.
0: Yeah, and just to give you an idea of how catastrophic it was, those 100 days, between 800,000 and 1 million were killed. Between 200,000 and 500,000 women and children were raped. 67% of the survivors who were raped are now shown to be infected with HIV AIDS as a result. An average of six people were killed every minute. 50,000 women were widowed, 10 times the number of widowers. 75,000 children were orphaned. And 73% of the survivors have reported symptoms of PTSD, 38% of which have shown severe symptoms. Yeah. It was, it basically lit the whole country on fire.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so the whole region is pretty destabilized, um, largely in part because of this whole thing. Even though the genocide had ended in Rwanda, it had some spillover effects into the Congo, as I mentioned, the government had fled to congo which has its own ethnic tension issues so basically the genocide led into the first congolese war which i'm going to talk about a little bit because it kind of is a an addendum to what was going on and honestly it's still kind of going on so the first congo war is often referred to as africa's first, first world war and was a major civil war and and generally international military conflict taking place in zaire which as i said earlier is the modern day democratic republic of the congo Zaire had been a failing state under the control of dictator Mobutu Seze Seko, and he had never managed to bring central control or order to the country since its independence in the 60s. Rebel groups had, and still do, exist throughout, part, throughout parts of the country. Ethnic tensions in Zaire had existed for centuries between the agrarian tribes native to the land and the semi nomadic Tutsi who had emigrated there from Rwanda at various points earliest group arriving before colonization in the 1880s, followed by emigrants whom the Belgian colonizers forcibly relocated to Congo to perform manual labor after 1908, and by other significant waves of immigrants fleeing the social revolution that brought the Hutu to power in Kigali. So a lot of the same history that essentially instigated the Rwanda genocide also has instigated a lot of things in Congo, (laughs) because turns out borders are just lines on maps. Yeah, the Tutsi who went to Zaire following independence were known as the Bani Rwanda, which essentially meant that they were from Zaire. But the locals often didn't distinguish between the two and just called them all Bani Mulenge, which means foreigner. So Mobutu gave the Bani Mulenge political power in the east in the hopes they would keep a tight grip on power and prevent more populous ethnicities from forming an opposition. So it seems to be a thing of whoever's the ruler to be like, hey, Tutsis, you should control this group. It's gonna, It's going to be great and then it's not. It seems to just make these tensions worse. The obviously aggravated ethnic tensions in the area strengthened, as the Banyamalengi's hold over important stretches of land in North Kivu. Indigenous peoples had claimed this land as their own, the Banyamalengi's hold over it was becoming a lot more, a lot stronger, and this definitely aggravated all the tensions in the area. Despite a strong Rwandan presence in Mobotu's government, in 1981, Zaire adopted a restrictive citizenship law which denied the bani Mulenge and Bani-Rwanda citizenship, and therewith, all political rights. It was never enforced, but it greatly angered individuals of Rwandan descent and contributed to a rising sense of ethnic hatred. From 1993 until 1996, Hyundai Nande and Nyanga youth regularly attacked the Bani-Mulenge, leading to a total of 14,000 deaths. So, more people dying at the exact same time as the genocide. Um, in 95, so now we're getting to the point after the Rwandan genocide, Zairean parliament ordered all peoples of Rwandan and Burundian descent repatriated to repatriate their countries of origin, including Bani Malenge. The Bani Mulenge, as early as 1991, developed ties with the RPF due to political exclusion and ethnic violence. The genocide in Rwanda, though, was ultimately a deciding event in precipitating this war. The genocide sparked a mass exodus of refugees known as the Great Lakes Refugee Crisis, with nearly 2 million refugees ending up in the area. Of those who fled Rwanda during the crisis, about 1.5 million people set- settled in eastern Zaire. It included the refugees fleeing Hutu genocidaires, as well as 1 million Hutu who had fled the RPF's retaliation. Prominent among those fleeing RPF retaliation were the genocidaires themselves, such as elements from the Rwandan army, FAR, or independent Hutu extremists, which we've talked about the interim way. Often these Hutu forces allied with local Mai Mai militias who granted them access to mines and weapons. Initially, they were self-defense organizations, but quickly they became aggressors. Hutu set up camps in eastern Zaire from which they attacked both the newly arrived Rwandan Tutsi as well as the Bani Molenge and Bani Rwanda. These attacks caused about 100 deaths a month in the first half of 1996. The newly arrived militants were also intent on returning to power in Rwanda and began launching attacks against the new regime in Kigali, which was represented a serious security threat to the very fragile state. Mobotu was incapable of controlling the former genocidaires for aforementioned reasons, but also actually supported them in training and supplying for an invasion of Rwanda, forcing Congali to act. Given exacerbated tensions and lack of government control in the past, Rwanda felt compelled to act against the security threat posed by the genocidaires, who had found refuge in Zaire. The government began forming Tutsi militias for operations in Zaire as early as 1995, and chose to act following an exchange of fire between Rwandan and Tutsi and Zairean Green Berets. This marked the outbreak of the Bani Malenga Rebellion on August 31st, 1996, which essentially just turned into the war. The initial goal of the rebellion was to seize power in Zaire's eastern Kivu province and combat the extremist Hutu forces attempting to continue the genocide to their new, in their new home. The rebellion did not remain Tutsi-dominated for long, as Mabuti's harsh, selfless rule created enemies in virtually all sectors of Zairean society. The rebellion, as a result, benefited from massive public support, and grew to be a general revolution rather than a mere Banyamulenge uprising. Elements and non-Tutsi militias coalesced in, into the Alliance of Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Congo, ADFL, under the leadership of Laurent Desiree Kabila, who had long had been a longtime opponent of Mobutu, and the leader of one of three main rebel groups that founded ADFL. The ADFL was ostensibly Zairean, but Rwanda played a key role in its formation. Observers of the war and Kagame himself claimed that the ADFL was formed in, and directed from Kigali, and contained not only Rwandan-trained troops, but also regulars of the Rwandan Patriotic Army. The ADFL captured land around the border, including diamond and coltan mines. Uh, For those of you who don't know what coltan is, it's the stuff that makes your phones work, basically, and computers. It's a really essential element in electronics. So the ADFL had captured land around the border, including these mines, and this temporarily satisfied them until Angola entered the war in 1997. While there, Rwandan and allied forces committed multiple atrocities, mainly against Hutu refugees. The true extent is unknown because the ADFL and RPF caref- carefully managed NGO and press access where the atrocities are thought to have occurred. But Amnesty International said as many as 200,000 Rwandese Hutu refugees were massacred by them and the Rwandan Defense Forces and allied forces. The UN doc- similarly has documented mass killings of civilians by Rwandans, Ugandan, and the ADFL. Kabila was eventually, or would eventually seize power of Congo after Mobutu fled to Morocco, where he died. Kabila ordered a violent crackdown to restore order and then attempted to reorganize the nation as the Democratic Republic of Congo. His rule would prove to be disappointingly similar to <clears throat> Zaire under Mobutu. The economy remained in a state of disrepair, deteriorated further. He failed to improve the government, which continued to be weak and corrupt. Instead, he began a, a vigorous centralization campaign, bringing a renewed conflict with minority groups. Several factors that led to the First Congo War remained in place after Kabila's accession to power, prominently the ethnic tensions in in the Eastern DRC where the government still had little control. So the border was essentially still pretty volatile. Rwanda had also not been able to satisfactorily address its security concerns, and by forcibly repatriating refugees, Rwanda had imported the conflict. This manifested itself in the form of a predominantly Hutu insurgency in Rwanda's western provinces that was supported by extremist elements in eastern DRC. Without troops in the DRC, Rwanda was unable to successfully combat the insurgents, and in the first days of August 1998, two brigades of the new Congolese army rebelled against the government and formed rebel groups that worked closely with Kigali and Kampala. This then marked the beginning of the Second Congo War, which I'm not going to get into, but... There's essentially, like, the, the all of the stuff that helped spawn the, the conflict in Rwanda was also happening to its neighbors and is still going to some extent because the Congo is still an absolute mess well, with yeah. zero central power and rebel groups operating everywhere, operating all of their mines. So, like, a lot of the, the, the coltan we use in our phones is illegal. Blood diamonds was the big thing, and now it's basically blood coltan. So... Yeah, the spillover I just felt was really important to talk about because um, while we think of this genocide as being done, it kind of isn't because it's just essentially like spilled into other places to spawn other conflicts. And while those other conflicts on the face of them look like they're about other things, they all can kind of be tied together, I think, which was um, depressing (laughs) to learn about.
0: (laughs) Like my friend John said the legacy of Rwanda is still very much alive.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's not like – this whole thing isn't over in any way. I mean, Rwanda is still really, I mean, reeling from this whole thing. It's not, it's not fixed.
0: No. The well, Kagame is still in power.
1: Yeah. Um, it's considered it, to be, yeah. One it, of the... In
0: fact, he just got reelected, yeah. quote unquote. I mean.
1: What I found interesting about Kagame though, like coming to power is that initially he was, um, he was a defense minister. He formed a an alliance with a Hutu politician that created a really like like a power sharing government. They wanted to, you know, be, they wanted to do their best, right? Like, I'm mean, he actually had good intentions in that way. But then down the line, got rid of him, became the president as well, and is also now a dictator. So <laughs> it's, um...
0: Again, quote unquote. I mean, we're not, the reason why I keep saying that is because we're not necessarily in a position to judge. No. Because we didn't really look into it very much, but we have heard...
1: Well, I know that um, I did look into it a little bit. So Rwanda has a pretty questionable uh, still, like human rights still aren't very much a thing. Yeah, um, there's, it's it's a pretty like strict society. The economy is still kind of weak. Uh, it's getting better. Um, its main source of the economy is uh, through growing coffee still. Um, and it's considered to be the best coffee in the world, actually, a U.S. publication. Or multiple U.S. publications have said that. Uh, the difficulty is that Rwanda is just small and can't really compete with massive coffee producing countries like in South America and stuff like that. So that's a big problem. But its main source of income actually as an economy is tourism because it's home to a bunch of like amazing gorilla refuges. And uh, that's a huge part of the economy is tourism in Rwanda. I know some people who have been uh, actually this summer or last summer, like as recently as then. So said it was a beautiful place and the people are lovely. I think it's generally less violent than it used to be, obviously, but I think that the tensions are still very much there. I've read a couple of different articles about different NGOs that are helping to work there. One of them, randomly, actually, is run by the Toronto Raptors. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, so the president of the Toronto Raptors, Masayu Ujiri, is from Nigeria, and he has this program called Giants of Africa. And it's a he runs camps and different things in in Africa to try and... I mean, he has two Cam... He has two Cameroonian... Or no, he has a Cameroonian player on his on the Raptors and a Congolese player on the Raptors as well. But the Giants of Africa thing has been really positive and they've started doing a lot of work in Rwanda to help kind of come to a, an understanding of like healing. I watched a video on it. I'll find it and post it on the Facebook page. Sounds good. Because so I think that's actually a positive thing to show. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I'm sure you're all wondering what happened to the people who yeah were
1: yeah. instigating this shit. Tell us, Jonah.
0: So... so The Security Council established the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda on November 8th, 1994. And it was tasked to, quote, prosecute persons responsible for genocide and other serious violations of international humanitarian law committed in the territory of Rwanda and neighboring states between 1 January 1994 and 31st December 1994. End quote. It was located in... Arusha, Tanzania, with offices in Kigali as well, and the appeals chamber was in The Hague. Proceedings opened in 1995. The tribunal consisted of 16 judges in four chambers, of which three were reserved for trials, and the fourth was reserved for appeals. The judges came from around the world, including South Korea, Czech Republic, China, Russia, and the United States, although most were from other African countries, which included Uganda, Madagascar, and Tanzania. Presiding judges were Miparani Johnson of Madagascar in Chamber 1, William Sekuli of Tanzania in Chamber 2, Wagen Jonsson of Denmark in Chamber 3, and finally Theodore Marin of the United States in the Appeals Chamber. Although all chambers except for Chamber 1 had multiple judges presiding over it. An international manhunt for the perpetrators who had fled the conflict was started and run with in coordination between the UN, the various different uh, police agencies around the world, and Interpol. Most of the perpetrators had fled to the neighboring states, while others managed to escape to other parts of Africa and even Europe. The indictments included those of high ranking military and government officials, businessmen, militia, media, and even religious leaders. The ICTR was the first international tribunal to give verdicts for the crime of genocide and the first to use the 1948 Geneva Convention's definition. Furthermore, it was the first to define rape as a breach of international law and the first to view rape as an act of genocide. The first international tribunal where members of the media were prosecuted for their role in broadcasts aimed at fueling hatred and encouraging violence and murder. The first high-profile case came with the arrest of Jean-Paul Akayusu, who was arrested in Zambia in October 1995, then extradited to the ICTR. He was charged with 15 counts of genocide, crimes against humanity, including rape, and the violations of the Geneva Convention. The defense team argued Akayusu was helpless to stop the killings and accused the court of making him a scapegoat. However, the prosecution had evidence that while Akayusu was mayor of Taba Commune in Gitarama, he gave handwritten lists of known Tutsis to militias and personally ordered house-to-house searches. He also personally supervised some of the killings and was later found guilty of nine counts of genocide and crimes against humanity. And he was the first individual to have the 1948 convention on the prevention and punishment of the crime of genocide enforced against him. He was sentenced to life imprisonment and is currently serving his sentence in Mali. What's interesting is that it seems that all of the people I looked up are serving their sentence in Mali. Like that were charged by the ICTR directly I don't know why Molly was chosen, but
1: maybe proximity to Rwanda. Possibly,
0: like, yeah. But I it think. just it's just like it's just interesting that Molly was chosen. So yeah. if anyone knows the reason why, give I mean, us a comment. The
1: only like guess I'm gonna hedge is that it's something to do with like location. The UN might just have something there already and then like decided possibly. that's the place. And then also most This is a random fact. Um <laughs> a lot of places if you get sentenced and you have to go to jail there's like a lot of times a restriction on how far away from your home you can actually be sent. Okay. And so I don't know if this is a thing in this case, but I know that there is sometimes a restriction on how far away you can be sent. So I mean, okay. there's a reasonable chance that maybe like Mali Mali is like the you know, the prison they have there and it's the closest to Rwanda and so they don't want to, you know, put these people in like the Hague. <laughs>
0: gotcha. Yeah. But
1: I, okay. don't, I don't know. I'm just hedging a guess. If I, anyone
0: I'm, knows, yeah. shoot us a comment on the. Let us know.
1: Yeah. We're interested.
0: Ferdinand Nahimana and Jean Bosco Barayaguiza were the high profile hate media cases. Both were in charge of Radio Television Libre de Micoline, along with Hassan Nagizi of the Kagura newspaper. All three were charged with genocide, incitement of genocide and crimes against humanity before and during the killings in 1994. The court found the men guilty of all charges, with Nahimana and Nagizi receiving life sentences and Barayagwiza receiving a sentence of 35 years. On appeal, Nahimana's sentence was reduced to 30 years, Barayagwiza to 32 years, and Nagizi was to 35 years. The tribunal lasted until 2015. During this time, the ICTR indicted 93 people, 62 were sentenced, 14 were acquitted, 10 were handed over to national jurisdictions, 3 fugitives were given to the MICT, and 2, two died before trial, and 2 indictments were withdrawn prior to trial. Prime Minister Bagosora, Zora, who was seen as the prime instigator of the genocide, was sentenced to life imprisonment as the chief orchestrator of the genocide, although he, his appeal later reduced this to 35 years. He is still current Actually, in fact, all of the people who were eventually found guilty are still serving their sentence. Some of them will never get out. For example, Bagasora will be eligible or will be released when he's 89 years old. And from what I read, he's in poor health right now in prison and probably will not survive. So that's what happens in Rwanda, the horrific, a continued horrific yeah. story of unfortunate, conf- like, humanities conflicts boiling over. Yeah. yeah. So, tough. It's a very tough situation to discuss, obviously. It's very tough for us to talk about it, and let alone research it. And... It really makes you speechless, doesn't it?
1: Yep. A lot like Bosnia did.
0: So, yeah.
1: I mean, I think the, the like, I don't want to say weird thing, but the thing about Rwanda that's, like, kind of interesting to me, this kind of stuck out to me the whole time, was thinking about, like, our education, like, growing up, because I knew a lot more about Rwanda than I did about Bosnia. Me too. Because we talked about Rwanda a pretty good amount when I was in school. Like we didn't talk necessarily like, you know, we didn't go through the entire colonial history of Rwanda and things like that, which I'm kind of glad I did. Um, but I mean, I'm always glad, but I, uh, we didn't do that kind of stuff, but we did talk about the genocide. I mean, it was obviously talked about more of a vacuum because that's how that works in school. But I think I knew so much more about Rwanda than I did about the Yugoslav conflict, which is, so interesting and they're often kind of compared or at least held up to each other because they happened at the same time and again not good for the UN because they kind of messed up both so not a great look for them in the 90s yeah Kofi Annan is definitely still reeling because he was the head of peacekeeping and he's still reeling from that um forever really because uh, he had a lot of people who did, even like to the day he died, did not really respect him because of how he handled that, Dallaire being one of them. That's aside. But yeah, I don't know. Just like comparing them, it's really weird because I yeah know so much about one and not the other. And I feel like it's probably the same for a lot of people. I feel like there's more people who maybe knew more about Bosnia at the time than Rwanda. I think maybe some of it's like a reaction to how the conflicts were covered.
0: Well... F- from what I, I've talked to my parents about, yeah, like when we were doing the Yugoslav episodes, I was kind of talking about, it, and they both say they remember seeing on the news more about, like Bosnia would be on the
1: yeah like stuff happening
0: in Bosnia. Well, would be on and the I news. remember
1: that being brought up a little bit, and I, 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 could be wrong. I really want to say it got brought up during uh, Hotel Rwanda, to be honest, <laughs> but I could be real wrong. It came up in some movie and or documentary I've watched about how like Delair felt very. <clears throat> frustrated that bosnia was getting all of the attention it was getting and he was getting none because his situation was arguably well not really worse but worse in a way the pun was in a much worse like position in, in Rwanda because they had just even less but the he was frustrated by the news reporting everything and the way it was because he felt that it was honestly i i don't want to put words in his mouth but there's a lot of opinions that it was almost like not entirely like intentionally racist coverage, but it kind of showed like the West, it, can, it shows this, the Western bias towards the media, right? If something's happening in Europe, we're instantly caring more than when it's happening somewhere in the middle of somewhere else. Yeah, That happens I, a lot now, even. I can
0: understand why people have that thought process, but yeah. I think also part of it was, although this can definitely be argued, yeah, this is a, like, this can be seen as racist, is that conflicts like this were seen as normal in Africa. Yeah whereas it, in Europe it wasn't.
1: But that's also again like the colonial mindset.
0: Yeah, that's my point. Yeah. Like that that's that's the thing. <laughs> so but um
1: there's it's it's just like there's a colonial mindset in how we cover all of this. And even like still because kind of unrelated to Rwanda, but I just sort of learned a lot more about King Leopold II and the Congo. And like even still when you read stuff in Belgium, like e- King Leopold, for the most part, like, is still really popular. Like, people know what happened and they talk about it, but not a lot. It's like, no, we're still going to kind of hold him up as a pretty decent king, even though he's responsible for, like, 15 million deaths and a lot of handless people. Well, it's interesting because um,
0: a lot of people, uh, the I think the second largest ethnic, like, ethnic population in Belgium are Congol- Congolese.
1: Yeah. And yet it's like this whole chunk of history. People are like, do, 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 not going to talk about it. <laughs> Don't want to talk about that. Yeah.
0: So. I mean, they still, they still import diamonds into yeah. oh, Congo yeah. or into, be- into Belgium.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, that's well, one of their largest industries.
1: Yeah, De Beers. Yeah. I mean, well, there's... De Beers, to be fair, does own massive diamond mines yeah, in Canada, da- too, so...
0: Diamond on, diamond on top and then chocolate. Yeah. Or maybe chocolate above diamond. I don't know. And coffee. But uh,
1: I mean, the Dutch, all of those colonies still do because that's, or all of those countries still do because that's what their colonies yeah, had. Yeah, well, what,
0: what's in, you mentioned the diamond mines in Canada. What's interesting is there are actually, the diamonds that are, fat, like, mined in Canada are a lot more expensive than the ones mm-hmm. in, like, Africa because they're not considered conflict diamonds. I mean, rightfully so, they're not yeah. conflict diamonds. Also, but.
1: I believe there was, like, I don't know if this was all with all diamonds, but, like, my grandma has a ring, and in the diamond, when you look at it, like, with a um a microscope or whatever to look there's actually like a polar bear etched into it and i don't know if that was like a special edition or a thing for a while to determine that it was a canadian diamond hmm that'd be interesting to
0: look up yeah
1: yeah i just know it's a thing but yeah no the and and now with like coltan it's not over i mean those minerals are still real important
0: uh, going back uh, yeah. to going back to like <laughs> learning about Rwanda in high school, they did a good job about teaching. I remember they did a really good job about teaching about Rwanda in high school.
1: I remember it being really good. I remember it sort of being again kind of in a little bit of a vacuum, like we didn't really talk about the. We honestly didn't talk about the colonization of Africa like that much.
0: We oh, did a bit. Maybe you guys didn't. I remember talking quite a bit about. I think it was just probably my teacher at the time. Yeah,
1: but. I think it really varies. The only like the most content on Africa I really got was, uh, I mean, the Rwandan genocide, but um, apartheid in South Africa and oh, like yeah. and like basic stuff about colonization in Africa. Like I had an idea that about the Berlin Conference and I had an idea of that kind of stuff, but just it was really broad, general, like. The colonization of the world, not specifically Africa. Right. And again, I knew more about the colonization of Congo because of Heart of Darkness.
0: <laughs> ah, okay. And well, also uh,
1: uh, or Apocalypse Now.
0: Right. Well, what, so. what annoyed me the most is that we had to watch Hotel Rwanda. Both I had to watch it in grade 10 and in grade 11 oh, for really? the same thing. I and only I'm just watched like, it once, I think. We watched it twice. And the second time we were going to watch it, we were like, can we not like watch every like everyone had seen it at that point.
1: Yeah, and I think it loses it's one of those movies that loses so much of its power after you've seen it once too. Yeah,
0: and we tried to get our uh teacher to play Shake Hands with the Devil instead. Because in my opinion Shake Hands with the Devil is a way
1: better, better movie. I agree
0: don't get me wrong Hotel Rwanda is good
1: it's a bit like Blood Diamond though right where it's a yeah. good movie in terms of introducing the topic to you and intri- and that's that's kind of how I feel about a lot of historical movies like it I mean ob- we had this conversation the other day there's obvious exceptions to some historical movies but like
0: Braveheart yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> Valkyrie um but movies like Hotel Rwanda and Blood Diamond like they are certainly problematic in a lot of ways just and how they portray things because obviously it's kind of sensationalized there's a lot of yeah it's sensationalized accurate, there's accurate. so
0: much fictionalized yeah i mean don't get me wrong what the men actually did Isn't i can't what, what paul ross's subagina yeah did a lot of heroic yeah stuff To and,
1: and and honestly like the movie did a good job of highlighting the work of someone who honestly wasn't known until that movie yeah no it's it's a bit like blood diamond where like there's there's problems with it, but I think especially in high school or in that age group, it's like a, it's a fabulous way to make people aware of a topic, right? I mean, that's what's still important about those movies is that they, they still made you be like, oh, wait. Because yeah. I know after we watched Blood Diamond for like the – well, that's the movie we watched like 80 times in high school. But I remember after watching it, I was like really fascinated and looked – up. I learned a lot about Sierra Leone after watching that, right? So, I mean, I realize I'm a different person than many, but I think it's still important – in terms of introducing the idea. But yeah, also, there's just more to it.
0: Let's move over here. Join me and sit uh, around with a microphone with yeah. our new mascot, Kevin. So, um, <laughs> yeah, like, I've read Shake Hands with the Devil, and it's it's a great book. Like, mm-hmm. And you really understand his trauma, yeah. I, would, I would definitely say. Because, yeah. I mean, obviously, he's an out- he was an outsider just surrounded by this. But you get that he completely understands how dramatic this was for the country.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that he... I think he empathized and, like, felt for the people that this was happening to in a way that no one else did, in the sense that, like, he was there. And I I do think Dallaire's kind of special. Just because, I mean, I, I don't really know that the heads of the peacekeeping force in Bosnia, for instance, necessarily, like, I, I do think they empathize with the people they were protecting, but I don't think to the same level that Dallaire did.
0: Pro- probably, yeah, but I'd also say... I don't want like, to say they
1: didn't, because I'm sure they did, but I just feel like Delaire's is a little bit, like, unique, too, because he was just more willing to be outspoken and to go for things, right? Yeah. Like, he was more willing to be like, well, hey, these people are all gonna die, <laughs> like,
0: yeah. we'll see what's mean, happening. If anyone really, if you can, if you really want to blame somebody and and it, or, or a group of people, it's definitely more of the higher ups. Yeah. That's absolutely. always my opinion that. always about is, stuff like for that. sure.
1: Oh, it always is. But I do think that there's like a level of um, also just, and I, I do know that like lots of, of peacekeepers in, in Yugoslavia like wanted to do better and they, they did try and fight for to do better. But I don't think it was near, I mean, it was obviously not nearly as public. I mean, Delaire wrote a book and
0: yeah, he was, well,
1: he was very publicly critical of them in the press during the whole thing too. Like, he, he would actively speak to the press and against the UN, essentially,
0: yeah. because he's like,
1: I want to do things, and they're not letting me.
0: Right. <laughs> he took uh, it to
1: the court of public opinion, but unfortunately, no one was watching.
0: Right, and then, like, in Bo- we, we touched this briefly in Bosnia, but there's evidence that Dutch personnel allowed the Srebrenica massacre to happen and, like, yeah. just let them in. Yeah. And it wasn't uh, necessarily, like, I'm not saying that every single Dutch soldier there was... No. Motivated out of hatred, but certainly, the higher ups were. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I'm about to shoot myself in the foot, but unfortunately, the Netherlands, you're beautiful people. I love you guys. Super racist. You have issues with racism, like you cannot. I'm
1: Dutch. I've been there. It's a thing. You
0: can't. <laughs> you can't exactly deny it with one of the when when one of your largest parties is an actively anti-Islamic party. Yeah. So. I mean, my I mean, my my uncle's Dutch, so.
1: I have a lot of relatives still there, so, <laughs> yeah, it's a thing.
0: But, to but honestly, no. I obviously I don't believe that most of your soldiers there were motivated out of hate, and I'm pretty sure all of them are suffering both yeah. guilt and trauma. But having re- read reports of like that, yeah, the the Dutch officers willingly allowed this massacre to happen. I mean, for goodness sake, it collapsed the Dutch... It caused the Dutch government to collapse, basically, and... Which, if you listen to those episodes, of
1: you'll learn about. Yeah. I mean, yeah, not to keep bringing it back entirely, but it, they're so, like... It's easy to... Com- it's so, like, hard to not compare them, in a way. They happened...
0: well they, happen because to the, they yeah, happened at the yeah, same they time. they happened at the same time. They had the same sort of yeah problems that yeah. everyone faced, so... It's Or that that, Yeah they both face Different issues It's just just that Rwanda wasn't Was kind of put on On this Back back burner burner. Well And 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 left there to Yeah
1: to, and I mean, I guess to clarify my statement earlier, I don't really know that it's like racist, but I do think people care more when it happens in the Western world because it hits closer to home for us. No matter what, even if we don't harbor prejudices, we're going to care more about a conflict in Europe because it's closer to home for more people.
0: Yeah. I do think that that's mindset's kind of changing because of like you a hear little. so much about... Uh, we're A little he- bit.
1: I don't know because I mean, at the same time that the Paris attack happened, there was another like massive bombing and... Um,
0: it, was it Beirut?
1: Was it Be- I think it was Beirut. At, like the same day or like two days later and killed a lot more people and like crickets. Unless you followed the right news outlets, you weren't going to find out about it. So, I mean, while obviously what happened in Paris was horrible and I actually know someone who was there, we also talked a lot more about it than what happened in Beirut. Well,
0: I know, I knew people who were in Oslo when...
1: Yeah, I was in Finland happened. when that happened. My grandma couldn't remember what country I was in. She was very uh, worried.
0: Yeah, that would do it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I had friends in Oslo and... They said it was like immediately people were suspecting it was Islamic yeah. terrorism. And uh and like he admits he was also suspecting the same thing, but then it came out that it was a a racist
1: Norwegian far,
0: dude. Far far right, far right Norwegian.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh. But uh But I think that's
1: just what what the case is. Like, just to clarify my point earlier, like I said, I didn't really want to necessarily call it racist, but I do think at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that like people in, say, North America, when working at parallel conflicts of Bosnia and or Yugoslavia and and, uh, Rwanda, when comparing those two things, I would be pretty willing to bet that more people just care about Bosnia because it's a place they first of all know about. Two, it's closer to home. And three, probably know someone who's been to, at that point, had been to Yugoslavia or had some kind of connection because that's how these work. So, like, there's just more, it's, I, yeah, I just well, think it's a matter of caring a little bit.
0: Also, considering, like, the proximity to places like Germany. Yeah. Which is what it, it was and still is, like, thriving.
1: It's like the third largest economy in the world, so but, yeah, it's a big deal.
0: But to play devil's advocate, it's <laughs> like you have the conflict of the troubles, mm-hmm. and like nobody knows about it. I mean, obviously, when you were growing up, well, um, but apparently, even it didn't make a lot of news in North America. It wasn't really Europe.
1: funny because it has my mother completely terrified to go to the UK. Still now,
0: oh well, to, for people <laughs> who are terrified to go to the, to ridiculous. go to Northern but Ireland, whatever. to pe- people who are. Terrified to go to Northern Ireland because of the troubles. It's all I good. was in. <laughs> it's all good. I was in Northern Ireland. I it was. I felt super safe. I mean, it's kind of weird seeing fortress like police stations and armored police vehicles driving around everywhere. But nothing happened while I was there. Nothing. Nothing even I close. I have a lot of friends happen,
1: who so. are from Northern Ireland and live there. So
0: it's a great it's place. Different. Um, but
1: but yeah, I think it's it's definitely. And I think there's a difference, though, between the Troubles and, like, other things, because it was very, like... We're also a British colony, so they're going to control the flow of information a lot better.
0: Yeah, but, I mean, (laughs) what I'm saying is that, like, I've talked to, like, my dad and whatnot. I know, but in
1: terms of it making the news, that's probably because that information got controlled a lot better, because it's a British... (laughs) The British aren't going to let it come out entirely. Uh, Fair enough. So, that's, like, a different situation, I think, because it's not, like, a big international conflict. It's literally between...
0: Well, yeah, it was a civil war. Yeah. So... It, um, didn't, it
1: didn't involve a United Nations mission, and that's kind of, I think, the point here.
0: Okay. Yeah, good point. <laughs> going back to Africa, like I said, um, my my friend John, I said in the last episode, he was, uh, on top of being stationed in Cyprus, he was also in the current mission in the Congo.
1: It's been, yeah, going for, I think it's one of the longest running missions.
0: Well, it's, there's, there's Manu, the Manuk mission, yeah. but now this new mission was started in 2010. And that—that's the mission he was part of. So while they've been in Congo for a long, 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 long time, yeah, Manusco. Or yeah, I think
1: Manusko. Manusko is, is the original one.
0: But he—the he, yeah. current one that's there—that's what—that's the mission he was part of. And he was in the capital of Kinshasa for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, for most of the time he was there, and then he was in the Kivu region, mm-hmm. where the conflict was largely still happening. Yeah, and. Uh, but he I just I forgot I didn't tell the story uh last episode and he kind of and he was kind of like why didn't you tell the story Oh, I
1: lied. Manisco the one your friend was Okay.
0: So Manusko was what he was part Started of. Started in 99. John says I need to tell the story. What happened is was when he was in Kinshasa, he was waiting for a shipment of aid to arrive. He was, he and this man from Pakistan were in charge of getting the supplies onto the trucks and <laughs> on their way to where they needed to go basically and uh the day came that it was supposed to arrive and they didn't arrive mm-hmm. and a week later it still hadn't arrived and so they're just standing there waiting for something that's not there and finally he turned to his friend to turn to this guy and he went how the hell is it not like why is it still not here why is the aid still not here and an african man who works at the docks or whatever Yeah. Happened to be walking by at that moment, looked John right in the eye, and went because this is Africa, you son of a bitch, and walked, just walked <laughs> off. And then John is just kind of standing there, kind of like both stunned and laughing because he just he's just like okay, like
1: <laughs> like uh. he
0: just he just didn't know how to respond to that. But yeah, he was just. Uh, yeah, he's, he was, uh, the closest he's been to Rwanda was when he was in the, I think it was the Kivu region was when, yeah. because that's uh, an area where they, they're still definitely feeling the...
1: Still very volatile. Oh yeah,
0: they're still <laughs> feeling the effects from the yeah. the genocide. There's a lot well, it's of... it's
1: always been volatile too, just because it was a really weirdly divided place when it was colonized.
0: Yeah, Well, if you look at like those ethnic maps of, yeah. um, of Africa and you see how messed up it is. Yeah. If you look at just the Congo, like, holy shit. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I think it's less, like, has fewer ethnicities than, like, South Africa in terms of, I think South Africa is the most still.
0: Oh, I, 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 probably. Um,
1: But yeah, Congo is, like, an extremely diverse ethnic country, or ethnically diverse country, so, yeah, like, I guess it's, like, an easy thing to say that colonization caused all this, but it. Kind of also did, like in a lot of ways, because these people, these groups wouldn't have been like forced together in the same way and then had those tensions like encouraged by the other people. I yeah. mean, it's not even just that they existed. They were encouraged actively, basically since the Germans got there in the 1800s. So it's like kind of surprising it took this long for something that crazy to happen. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, and also when you just look at the way some of these maps are drawn, you're just like... Why is that like? Why is this bit of Namibia going out all the way this far? Like, yeah, the hell. Yeah. And th- and then you look at like a map of the ethn uh, like the ethnicity map, and the ethnicities of those who live within that little—it's called the Caprivi Strip—yeah—are super ethnically diver- different from the rest of Namibia. Yeah, and so you kind of like I and you look at these and you're like, I can kind of understand why there's so much.
1: Conflict. Tension and yeah. conflict. I mean, these they've always had, I imagine, like, tribal conflicts and stuff, because that's just going to be the case. Yeah, and then... So, but then I feel like just the way that the, the the continent was just, like, divvied up without any consideration. Yeah. I mean, obviously, because the Germans and whoever else are like, black people, that's it. <laughs> they don't really... They didn't really get the difference.
0: Well, there's there's that quote from Hotel Rwanda where the colonel... Yeah. He says... Uh, they're not they're not gonna stop the slaughter because you're you're African. You're not even uh, insert n word here. Yeah, and it's depressingly true.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's, that's yep.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll be fair. John says it's actually he feels it's the the idea of like treatment towards Africans is really changing now because he says it, while well, it was probably it was like he's talked he knows like. He, all of those UN people talk. Yeah, yeah. And he knows people in the UN who have been who were like in during the Cong- the Congolese wars mm-hmm. and he knows people like who we were in Bosnia and he says like uh that they've that that it's a lot better when they go back there today yeah. because there there's definitely a lot more people aware and willing to help. Yeah. I mean they still got these countries still have a long ways to go. Oh, so far. But
1: I mean really Rwanda's in not much of a different position than it was when it ended in terms of, like, political control, right? It's just that it's changed, but it's someone who's still essentially a dictator. And then Bosnia is still literally being held together by a temporary agreement yeah, that was signed just to end the killing. And that's still what's dictating its government. Like, it's been 25 25 years and not a lot further. So it's kind of, I mean, I, I do think... To be fair, I have a, and I don't really, I can't really back this up, Um, I feel like Rwanda might be more stable than Bosnia in some ways because um, I do feel like there's been more attempts to at least talk about it. Even just the fact that when at least the government was first set up with Kagami, he at least had, like, Hutu involvement. And it it seems, I was reading about reports in, in Rwanda and, Uh, amnesty international and human rights watch and everything everyone's like uh civil liberties not good but said that this uh, i guess the opposition political leader or someone was arrested um and charged with like genocidal propaganda or something so like i don't really know anything about that but just that charge seems to indicate to me that they take any kind of baiting really seriously just kind of like how i mean germany still takes any symbols of nazism very seriously I mean, uh, when the producers went to, like, the play showed up in Berlin, they actually had to, like... And so does KISS. KISS has to change their logo when they play in Germany. Because their S's look like the S's. Yeah, okay. And the producers, it was a big, big, big deal when the producers opened in Berlin. Because it's a play that has Nazis in it. Like, Yeah, they you make can't fun.
0: really cut those They out.
1: relentlessly make fun of them. But, yeah, it's... So it was, like, a big deal that that was even allowed. So... I think that Rwanda is at least taking this thing this very seriously. I don't know that Bosnia is because when you understand like how the government currently is, it's still very much like led by racial tension. Like, well, yeah, each each faction of the government essentially is like, we're gonna do what's best for us.
0: Well, I, I mean, I, we explained in those episodes so there's yeah. three presidents, all from like one is Bosniak, one is Serb, and one is uh, Croatian. So. Yeah, you still got that kind of all most of the main political parties are like yeah. Bosniak nationalist or they're all nationalist. essentially yeah,
1: they're all essentially just driven by their own like
0: Yeah, except for the except for the main Croatian party. Yeah,
1: they're pretty decent.
0: So but um yeah, so like with but with Rwanda, it's interesting because I don't see Kagame as an evil man.
1: No, me neither. But I don't know
0: he's definitely I think he's definitely kind of
1: I, I actually you know what you know who I kind of think of him has as a little is a little bit like Huey Long in terms I of just being that. a conflicted like a difficult person to kind of get a grip on because I don't think he's a monster <laughs> but I also don't think like I don't think Kagame is on any kind of level of being a monster that as like, Ediamine, um, for instance yeah. right like that's a dictator or even the or Gaddafi or like or
0: Gaddafi or even the the um, the the people bef- who were in power before, before him
1: or like Bashar al-Assad or like any of the dictators we think about like now or even I mean if Gaddafi was in power forever um even um oh crap uh Zimbabwe um
0: Oh Mugabe Mugabe
1: like I don't really think of Kagame as the same as those people but I mean I also could be very wrong I don't
0: Yeah I, I've it's I've never true. been there
1: so I don't know
0: Just from what I've read I just
1: get the impression yeah that at least like he's at least tried to help his country heal.
0: It just seems like in, <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> and I I am willing to admit that I could be completely wrong and this is just my opinion. It just looks like a man who let power get to his head.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Or also maybe I did I imagine it's it's that and also the belief that oh I don't think it's fragile enough to re- I don't think it's stable enough to give up any power. Like I do think something kind of common that I even just like looking at um Mobutu being overthrown and then Kabila who being <clears throat> becoming president like he was so critical of Mobutu forever he was anti mobutu forever because Mobutu wasn't doing anything good for the country and Kabila wanted to do good for the country and then as soon as he becomes president it's the same thing and I think that like for a lot of Af- I-, I just imagine there's this idea of like once you come to power you feel like oh crap this is such a mess that if I don't exert some strength like that's the only way to do this. You know, like, you got to exert strength over the situation to manage it all, and then you just get used to asserting power and strength, and it's like, oh, it's kind of like this. <laughs> yeah,
0: the unfortunate, the unfortunate thing about Africa is they've had not, the like, the worst people who should be in power get into power. Yeah.
1: And, I mean, I, there's definitely a lot to suggest that the way that colonizers pulled out of these countries also really didn't help. Oh,
0: absolutely. I mean...
1: Well,
0: yeah. I mean, look at South Africa. It's like, oh, here's a good idea. Let's put the minority white population and power Mm -hmm. and just kind of turn a blind eye when they put the majority black people into what i would consider the worst form of racism
1: yeah apartheid was like jim crow on steroids yeah in a lot of ways (laughs) Um, wait till we
0: get to that
1: yeah Why does history have to be so depressing? Like, even
0: (laughs) even today, South Africa is still feeling, like, really... pretty tough. And, like, there's, of course, those arguments that saying, oh, apart... Like, the whole apartheid thing is kind of reversing, which I don't agree with.
1: I mean, there's certainly evidence of retaliation, but I would not call it reverse apartheid. No. Just like I wouldn't call people being critical of white people reverse racism. It's kind of, like, not a thing.
0: Well, I mean... There's
1: certainly retaliation, but, you know, I don't think that it's, like...
0: Well, I mean, I'm... Straight up, I'm, I'm someone who's in the camp that I don't agree with the whole. Like, have you heard people say, "Oh, you can't, you can't be racist to white people"?
1: Oh no, you can be. Yeah. I just mean that reverse racism isn't a thing. No, when people I, are talking about reverse racism. It's like, well, you're implying that the person you're being racist against is racist against yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> no,
0: no, I understand that, but I'm, I'm yeah. just explaining. Like, I'm, I'm also in the camp that you can be racist against white people, and the my explanation is that because there's different kinds of racism there's systematic racism which is like Jim Crow South or apartheid Person. South Africa which I mean yeah you, you, like you you can't be like you can't really argue that that's been done to white people No, but there's also individual racism which is like saying I don't know like saying all, all white like stereotyping that all white people are racist buck tea to yeah. um, cousin fuckers that's all I could think of, but Here's but it's at like Alabama, okay, you're huh?
1: Here's looking at you, Alabama. Just yeah, kidding. Yeah,
0: we're mad at Alabama right now, but yeah, why not like, mad at there's Alabama? There's that you can totally be like individually. Yeah,
1: racist. And against... I, I, I would agree with that. I definitely think though, like yeah, the 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 whole argument for like reverse apartheid essentially is bullshit.
0: I do agree with you. There have been retaliation. Yeah, there's measures. definite
1: evidence of retaliation against white farmers. But I mean, also, like, I also understand the frustration because it's now, again, been about, what, like, 20, uh, 25 years or so since South Africa, since uh, South Africa got rid of apartheid, and land and money is still very much in the hands of white people.
0: Yeah.
1: And things haven't, like... Yeah, it's been... But then at the same time, Mugabe's attempt to redistribute things in Zimbabwe was an epic failure. Yeah. So I don't really have an answer. I just... I think that I would like to caution people against, you know, thinking that, like, this is all just because Africans are dumb and can't take care of themselves. I do think there's a large part of, like, colonizers fucked them when they left. Oh, yeah. And ultimately are still kind of in control. I mean, like, these countries' biggest trading partners do tend to still be the countries that colonize them. Yeah. So there's still a reliance on those people.
0: And, like, what happened in Zimbabwe is, like, basically the Mugabe government took the land away from the white farmers. Mm -hmm. He paid them, but he not took, value. No, but he took he took the land away, and then the people he gave it to were not good at maintaining it, farming, and then it led to like a famine. Yeah, but and it's not, and we're not saying that the, oh, the it like black like we're not saying that they were incapable. No, they or just... like just. Really? genetically incapable of just doing it. They weren't prepared for it. No, they. these were people, he gave it to a lot of people who just weren't experienced. Was,
1: well, they just weren't prepared for it. They yeah. weren't farmers.
0: I mean, they- Or experienced yeah, farmers. And I mean, if anyone suffered more than like the people who lost the farms, I'm sorry, Trevor, I know you're listening. And he, Trevor's a friend of mine from high school who lost his farm.
1: Yeah, I have some um, friends too.
0: But uh, he, but honestly, I bet the, I'm pretty sure that the, like the black farmers who took over suffered a lot more than-
1: Yeah, oh yeah. When you're comparing suffering, it's uh, a, <laughs> which no one should do anyway. But yeah, I feel like in this case, like you don't really have the right to claim that it's the worst thing ever because yeah, you weren't systemically,
0: yeah. And, yeah.
1: and like apartheid was worse in Zimbabwe than in South Africa.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. But I, they had their own kind of, that whole region kind of had their own apartheid-esque But you know it's since... you, know,
1: you know who's doing pretty well though? Botswana. Botswana's yeah, doing great. Like, you go Botswana.
0: Botswana... <laughs> I, I, I know this is weird to mention it because I don't think that they had any sort of apartheid system, but Mozambique as well.
1: I actually don't know if Botswana had any apartheid system. Apartheid, no, they? They,
0: they did have, Pretty but same. not to the extreme of severity. South Africa. I just know that
1: just in terms of like African countries doing well, Botswana is like really doing quite well, which is interesting because <laughs> they suffer the same fate that a lot of the like poorest and most violent and volatile African countries face, which is being landlocked. But Botswana's just chugging along, doing their thing, doing good. So good yeah. for them. You go, Botswana.
0: I mean Rwanda for. I mean everything it's been like, through. Well, the, yeah, everything that's been through. <laughs> you apparently you can go there and it's relatively safe.
1: Oh, you know, like my my um my uncle and his wife were there like in July. They went on a big thing in Africa and, and went to Rwanda. A, it's and, safe, right? Oh yeah, yeah. They had a great time. They loved Rwanda. I mean, Rwanda. it Probably
0: has the same kind of dangers. Other. Areas, but I, I mean for just, the most part, you can go there. I have and be a high fine. school
1: teacher too, who she um her and her husband just traveled. Like they didn't have kids and they just traveled and so she's been to Ethiopia. Like she's been all over Africa. I feel like she's probably been to Rwanda. I'd be shocked if she hasn't. Yeah. Um I so mean, it's it's like like I said, tourism is actually one of their biggest industries now because um it actually is the biggest industry because from a coffee perspective, they produce the best coffee, but they can't compete with volume from like Colombia and South America and other major coffee producing countries. But their tourism is like really really huge because they have a lot of like gorilla reserves and stuff like that and i guess from a conservation standpoint rwanda is doing a great job of conserving the jungle and everything yeah. too so
0: and john says uh Yay. john says he actually loves the congo yeah. like he although he said like when you first arrive there you the first thing you 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 think to yourself is it's hot
1: oh god like
0: really hot and then you also notice that it's very crowded yeah but he was in Kinshasa for most of the time, which yes. is the main city. Well, but my
1: understanding from anyone I know is like worked in Congo usually through like say like Doctors of the Borders or the UN or something like that. Is that they love Congolese people? They just really hate what's going on, and that like Congo, like Congo is a beautiful and amazing place. But like, yeah, it's yeah. just
0: well, he says messy. He says like he's like these people have like like there's a lot of poverty in Congo, yeah, and whatnot, but. By- you still see people laughing and joke, like joking with you.
1: I think the thing is, is that at some point you gotta just continue to live your life because it's the thing I think that people kind of just lose sight of is how long this violence has been happening. It's kind of just like normal. Yeah, which is fucked up.
0: Well, he's, and he says Kinshasa is definitely
1: <laughs> isolated a little.
0: No, not not. I mean, it is, but that's not what I was gonna say. But like every single ethnic group that lives in Congo. Will like live in Kinchasa, whereas like certain town like he said in Ki- the Kiwi region it was very
1: divided kind
0: of no, not divided, but there was like not as more mixed. like homogeneous yeah it was yeah. there's more of that, but then in Kinshasa, you have all of these groups Which living together. I think it's
1: probably relevant of ev- everywhere I mean, like you look at massive cities like Toronto, and it's extremely diverse um, diverse, but then you go outside into like really rural areas of canada and like it's a lot more homogenous because yeah. that's just the way it works
0: yeah exactly but he's like I, he says <clears> it <throat> definitely helps the the original division like these well you the, like these like oh this the, the guy uh, the guy from this group like the guy over here is from this like tribe and the but the and the guy cr- in the shop across the street is from this tribe mm-hmm. where for like almost centuries, those two tribes were yeah, at fighting. each other's throats, but now it doesn't really matter much. Like at all. So like they're good friends. Yeah. Whereas like if you go outside the city. And it matters that, a lot more. It matters a lot more. I
1: think a lot of that has to do with, again, land distribution. And like, because the thing, a trend I've really noticed essentially, and can't harp on this enough, is just how badly the borders were botched. <laughs> And how badly this whole thing is, like how badly Africa was divvied up. And like, also just please read more about the Congo. It is fascinating and horrible. It has a horrible history, but one that everyone should actually know about because, yeah. Especially if you've ever been to Brussels and you've seen all the ivory. Definitely, definitely look into the Congo. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So hopefully none of this gets taken out of context. If we've offended you, we obviously did and, not mean to. So if you could politely point out that we said something wrong, yeah, I mean it's not that like obviously we don't have a. I mean,
1: I mean the the whole latter half of this thing is essentially just us having a conversation. So it is more our own opinions, not so much things we've read in history. Uh, and well, well, take it's, ownership. And I mean, it's, it's based it's, on the things it's we've based, read, yeah. but but and, you know what um, I mean. It's we're we're talking. These are we're forwarding our own opinions here and just kind of like, yeah, if you. Uh, if you got a problem with that.
0: Just be polite. Oh, well. I mean, we're, again, we've said this, like, if you're not going to be, if you're going to just bash us and whatnot, we're not going like, to take listening. you seriously. Well, we're not <laughs> going to take you seriously, and we're probably not going to respond. But if you, like, message us saying, hey, like, just wanted you to know, like, Like, Mm -hmm. this was kind of, like, misleading or whatnot. We'll take you seriously.
1: Also, thanks to the few people who have reached out to us with episode suggestions or have reached out to say they enjoyed episodes. We've had a couple, and uh, they've been really great to get. I love it.
0: Yeah, we'd love to Um, get more of those. One
1: even recently. So, um, please do that. We like it. Yeah, absolutely. Also, if you haven't, if you don't follow our social media, you should follow it because we have a cool new mascot now. His name is Kevin.
0: We got him at when we when we went to Tyrell on Monday. Mm-hmm.
1: We went to the Royal Tyrell Museum of Paleontology here in Alberta, which is the world's largest collection of dinosaur bones and also a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So yeah, pretty cool. And we got Kevin. So now we have a mascot. So you should probably follow our social media because Kevin's pretty awesome.
0: Kevin lives with Lindsay. Yeah. And he's... Currently
1: is hanging out on my mic stand.
0: Yeah, it kind of looks like he's... Writing it? Writing it. Looks like a little sp- like he's doing a pole dance it on the does, microphone. Yeah. Yeah. It does, yeah. Really, especially from this <laughs> I
1: will definitely be posting a photo of Kevin pole dancing on the microphone.
0: <laughs> so, with that said, uh, did you have any good news this week?
1: Um, Yeah, I've got a couple little things. One, kind of random good news, but it matters to me. So my favorite sports journalism thing, The Athletic. They have announced that they will have full comprehensive coverage of the WNBA, which is the first time that any really major publication like that is actually has a beat writer for every single franchise, as well as a larger writer and um, like multiple people, all of whom are women who've been covering the sport and have had struggles getting jobs because they cover the WNBA. So that's huge for women's sports in general. The other cool thing that I read this morning in medical technology is that some researchers attempted to use AI to read a CT scan, and they actually, the AI can actually read these scans better, which leads to hope that cancer might be able to be predicted sooner.
0: Really? Yeah,
1: there was a successful test with AI reading CT scans.
0: Well, that's incredible. Yeah. I'm so, someone who's done a lot of I'm
1: terrified about AI as a philo- AI as a philosopher, so I have a lot of like, <laughs> AI actually has kept me up at night, the thought of it, and like all of the ethical- implications of ai and facial recognition and technology huh anyway as a
0: historian ai kind of terrifies me
1: i mean really it should terrify everybody as people (laughs) Uh, it's horrifying but it also has the ability to do lots of good so yeah that was really incredible to read so between that and wnba coverage i'm down
0: i'm someone who's done like dozens of ct scans back when i was a kid people who don't know uh i have a
1: I think that I, they were really implying like all digital scans. So it'll come to like MRIs and stuff okay. too. But this was just on this.
0: MRIs suck. <laughs> I've never had one. They, you have to like lay briefly still. explaining, you have to lay still for like 20 minutes while, this, while it does its thing. It's awful. I didn't have a closed MRI, thank God. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway. That would uh, be a whole I've lot also, of claustrophobia. I've also had dozens of CT scans. I've had one MRI and like dozens of CT scans. People who don't know, I have a bald spot on my head because I had a benign tumor uma didn't know that, right. um, but anyway, my good news is by 2024 humans are going back to the moon nice it's going and they're doing it in a completely different way than they ever did. NASA has been working on this project along with the European space Agency there's one right? it's a bunch of different space agencies, including NASA, the European Space Agency, and the Canadian Space Agency are working together and they're actually constructing. What is known as the Lunar Gateway, and it is basically a space station that is going to orbit the moon. So when astronauts going to the moon, dock there first before they're descended down to the moon. Nice. And I saw a video they've been working, NASA has is uh conducting tests on a new rocket. That not only will be able to reach the moon. But get back to Earth. And most of its equipment will be able to be reused again. Which is... Incredible. It's insane just how much this has progressed. And the fact that... I've always said that I would never go to Mars. But I would go to the moon. And just the fact that we're going back to the moon. Is so exciting. (laughs) And... For those of you who listen to our other nonsense episode, that is the, the moon landing. Is the episode I'm looking most forward to this season.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty excited about that one. We have the heaviest of our episodes for this season over with this one.
0: Yeah, actually, the the, the, the rest is pretty.
1: We're gonna try and find some positive history since history doesn't always have to be depressing, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. He <laughs> <You> said nervously.
1: <laughs> Nervous
0: laughter. So um, just some pandering before I. Look up what, what the next topic is. So uh, follow us on social media, as Lindsay said before, because yeah. we've got a lot it's, of new stuff, including um, Kevin.
1: At Podcast is our on, handle is on Instagram, Pan and I believe
0: Instagram. also on Facebook. Technically. Yep. Um, we're, go to uh, com to listen to our episodes. I mean, you already know that if you're listening to this.
1: We also have a blog on WordPress, which if you just look up PanHistoria and other nonsense... Um, will show up, as well as Patreon. Also, shout out to Zach for being our newest Patreon, and Brian for still yeah. being around. We
0: love you. Wouldn't be a Panastoria episode without Brian. It's got out of Brian mention. Dang, so th- we didn't
1: even name drop Brian at all at the museum.
0: Whoops. Oh, well. Uh, he'll be all right. So, I just looked this, looked this up because I actually forgot. The next episode is going to be a brief episode basically, and it is a history of ideologies.
1: Yeah, so I think the idea for this one was we're just going to run through the, the major ones, and um, I think a theme of this season has been kind of explaining what the fuck is going on in the world right now, <laughs> in a roundabout way. Um, um, yeah, so ideologies, those matter, because Nazis are a thing again. So we're going to talk about that next. <laughs>
0: We're gonna yeah, we'll be talking and about the main ideologies. ones. Yeah, across the political spectrum, such as we'll we'll discuss what communism, communism, socialism, what not, co- conservatism, like etc., liberalism, fascism, blah 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 blah. There's and lots. we'll also be talking about some smaller <laughs> ideologies that you have probably heard of but don't know what they mean. Yeah, such as like social democracy.
1: Yeah, and also. A little bit about, like, the interesting systems in countries like Canada, where we also have a monarchy.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs>
1: um, we have our... I think that it's really, anyways, uh, it's important that we explain how government works and how um, ideologies work in the hope that you will be more informed and also understand, again, what the hell is going on. Because there's a lot of insane shit happening in the world and a lot of ideologies that I thought were dead.
0: <laughs> also, you you'll you'll understand... You'll start to understand that you can't label everything that you don't agree with as either communism or fascism. It's true. (laughs) Although most of the time it's It's real easy. Yeah.
1: And also, to be fair, right now you can blame a lot on fascism.
0: Oh yeah, looking at you, America. Yeah. I love Americans. Don't worry. Anyway,
1: the Nazis got to go though.
0: Yeah, (laughs) you guys, you guys, they got to go. They got to go. But um, that's it. Again, another stupid. That my mic ran out of room.
1: Yeah, another reason to subscribe to us on Patreon is no more mic issues.
0: Yeah, really. Oh my god. Anyway. Thanks, fam. I think uh, I think that's a good place to stop. So. Yeah. Um. Look um, for I've photos f- of Kevin. Look for photos of dancing. Of Kevin. Check out our video on on our trip to the museum and and see, which is basically the origins of Kevin.
1: Yep, and uh, stay tuned for a really big announcement, um, or stay tuned for fun new events.
0: When is this coming out? Monday.
1: Yeah. So June fourth. We're third, fourth, fourth. June fourth. We're doing a live stream. Yeah, of we're our, doing the live,
0: <laughs> Yeah, we'll be doing a live our live stream. I'm like, because, wait a minute. Because on June June third is the one year anniversary <laughs> of the release of our Korean War episode. So on July our June fourth, excuse me, we will be list. We'll be live streaming us listening to our first episode. Think, a la... Mystery Science Theater three thousand, and we are just basically gonna
1: think of it as director's commentary.
0: Yeah, or the cringe commentary.
1: Either work <laughs> should be interesting. So
0: join us for that.
1: Details will be released. It'll be great. Probably kind of weird. That's just okay. how this whole of story experience goes. So
0: exactly. So anyway, that's that's it. I believe. Oh, uh, a new blog post is out called uh, which is a. a a dedication to my grandfather Wayne Diamond, who passed away in November 2017, and was re- his ashes were recently brought to Prince Edward Island, where he was born. I wrote a brief eulogy about him, and I believe it just helps personalize our lives with our listeners and also yeah.
1: understanding that history is more about more than just about big events, but also about our own families. So. You'll yeah. understand.
0: He's a man I really credit to my love of history, and also who brought a lot of light in my life, and therefore I wish. This is why I wish to sure. share this with you. Okay. That's it. And uh, anyway, this is Jonah.
1: And I'm Lindsay.
0: Thank you guys. I'm so, Kevin. And Kevin. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Have a good one.